sun on the meadow is summery one. The stag in the forest runs free. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada. This is a Sean solo episode, but I am privileged to have an excellent guest with me today, Dylan John Riley, who's a professor of sociology at Cal Berkeley, um, whose interests are political sociology, comparative historical sociology, and social theory, here to talk about his relatively new book and talk about a lot of current events and news and analysis uh, that he has. So welcome, Dylan. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Sean. It's great to be here. I was fortunate to have Anthony from Verso Books. And Anthony, if you're listening, I'd like to give you a huge shout out, who found uh, Dylan Forrest and put the two of us together when we needed a pinch hitter. And I had the pleasure also, and this is one of the perks you know, of being a podcaster. I had the pleasure, too, of receiving your book uh, and being able to read it on my commute in the last couple of days as I crammed for this. Super excited for this episode. So uh, let's dive right in. Your um, early research interests were in uh, the interwar period of Europe and understanding how fascism arose uh, during that time. Uh, over the last, let's say since 2015, 2016 or so, a lot of the liberal discourse in the United States and certainly in Europe as well has been around this sort of the resurgence of fascism and the figure of Donald Trump or uh, Meloni in, um, in Italy, or Orban in Hungary, a sense that fascism is back on the rise again. You, like myself, and I've made this argument on the podcast, and some people have got a little wigged out about it, argue that what we're seeing right now cannot be adequately described as fascism. There is an illiberal right that is arising again in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere, uh, but it's insufficient to call that fascism. Can you expand a little bit on what your thoughts are about what's different between then and now? And if we're not going to call Trumpism or MAGA fascism, you know, what are we going to call it and how do we understand it? Yeah, thanks. It's a good question. Um, you know, I've dealt with it in a number of different places. I guess my 2018 publication on what is Trump uh, really took on this. It's one of the, it was one of the, I think it was, you know, somewhat controversial. Um, but anyway, what we need to do is we need to understand um, that the, the, we need to understand that our period, in order to understand our period, we must place it in a kind of historical um, perspective. And the, the thing you have to understand, I would just say, is that, um, you know, in one sense, um, there are some parallels in the his, overall kind of macro historical period. We are living um as uh, was the case also in the 1920s and the 1930s, we are living through, uh, you know, a, a quite period of really profound stagnation and kind of structural blockage of the capitalist economy. Um, and there is, there are also some um, similarities in the response of capital to that problem. In my view, the main similarities have to do with a kind of imbrication between political power and economic power in the contemporary period that has some echoes with what was happening in the 20s and 30s, although there are major differences. But um, there are a number of really important uh, differences that we have to understand. Um, so let's just take a couple of these. I mean, the first difference is that fascism in interwar sense arose in a period of extraordinary working class militancy. 
Um, remember that, of course, the first fascist regime comes to power in uh, October 1922. And that's really, of course, just, um, you know, about um, four or five years after um, the October Revolution. And this is before Lenin's death. So that revolution still is kind of cresting at a high tide of kind of um, political popularity. Uh, you know, and really deep popularity among the working masses, basically. Um, and, you know, these um, parties that um, organize working class interests in um, Western Europe in particular, particularly we can think of the German and, of course, the Italian um, socialist parties that will then split 1921 from the communist parties. These um, parties are very large and they are militantly anti-capitalist. Um, it should be obvious enough that nothing like that exists uh, today. Um, and the consequences for that difference are extremely profound because the fascist parties in their classic form arose very much um, in a, what you could think of as a dialectical relationship with the revolutionary left. They adopted tropes, forms of organization, tactics from the left, uh, and they created what essentially were the first mass parties of the far right, very much in imitation of the radical left. Um, that is simply not, that social process can no, in no way get off the ground in the contemporary period, wherever you are, in the United States or in, in, in Europe. So that's a, that's a huge difference. Some other differences that we could talk about. There's a real difference in social base, and it's a paradoxical one. The far right in the contemporary period um, has um, partially a working class base. Mm. Uh, now, I, you don't want to overstate that and say that the far right has become the party of the working class, because mm. that's really would be a major overstatement, and it has can only be made when you have, I think, what is a theoretically inadequate understanding of class. Nevertheless, it is true that, um, you know, a, a party like, you could say the Lega Nord, if you wanted to put it into this category. Um, Maloney's social base is a slightly different. There are some particularities of Italian politics that need to be understood there. But the Alternative for Deutschland, um, and of course, the National Front. These are parties that had, have made inroads into what were formerly, you know, working class, um, you know, working class zones of electoral support. Um, so I would say that the contemporary right is more working class, quite a bit more working class than its interwar predecessor, which was fundamentally rooted in kind of the small shop owner um, uh, and you could say to a certain extent among the professional classes mm. as well. However, however we want to think of it, they didn't quite have the working class base. So that's the second kind of very important difference. A third difference has to do with the geopolitical environment, mm. which is, again, this is something, this is another one of these differences that when you start thinking about it a little bit, it's just impossible to ignore. Let me take the case of Trump to begin with in this set of comments. Yes, please. If you set, if you stay, take a step back, one of the things that's most remarkable about Trump is how really um, timid he was on the geopolitical stage. He was much less aggressive 
than either Obama or Bush or even really Clinton. Mm. Um, he was in the tradition of American isolation, what's called isolationism, American tradition. He had absolutely no interest in engaging in a mass mobilizing war of any sort. Um, in some ways, he was following in, the, in, the, in a certain kind of tradition in the Republican Party of being very leery of engaging in that mm. sort of thing because of its political consequences. Now, rule number one in understanding, I would say, interwar European fascism is that this movement and then the regimes that came out of that movement were geared toward war from the beginning. Yeah. And born of war as well, right? Because Absolutely. The, they had emerged that, out of the First World War. They had emerged out of the mass mobilization for that. But they were also what made the, what really made their politics cohere more than anything else was a project of geopolitical revision. Hmm. Remember that Mein Kampf is fundamentally a foreign policy tax. Um, and, you know, in Italy, there was the idea of the proletarian nation. Why did fascism emerge in these places? Well, to a degree, because they were second-rate powers that had been cut out from the imperial great game. Right. And fascism was a project for essentially redressing that from, from their perspective, of creating these countries as great powers. This is not at all the case of the far right um, today. It does not have that kind of um, expansionist, aggressive, geopolitical stance for really obvious reasons. Um, and so I would say that's a further difference. The final difference is one that comes out of what I had originally argued in my book on interwar fascism, which was that paradoxically, these fascist regimes really depended on a very dense network of voluntary associations to organize their parties. They were, in a sense, they were sort of, they had this kind of, there was a kind of fascist, what is called in political science, civil society. Mm. Uh, that they drew on, like basically mutual aid societies, cooperatives, um, things of this sort. These which, is also, uh, which is also a, a, an analogy to or something they probably picked up from like the SPD, the, right. the Social Democratic Party in Germany, which had its own choral societies, mutual aid societies, you know, uh, and the Knights of Labor, for example, in the United States. This is an old sort of leftist. Um, exactly sort of uh, tendency to try to create a, a sort of counterculture or a subculture within the larger society. A and counterculture. A counterculture, yeah. So so in what happened, especially in the Italian case sometimes, is that, you know, what the, what the fascists would do is they would go in and eliminate the leadership of those organizations and rebrand them as fascist organizations. Mm -hmm. Fascist parties were literally built on the ruins of socialist parties in an organizational sense, right? And so you had to have that material there in order to get uh, get that get that going, and um, that is not. I mean, as as people like Robert Putnam and then this um, very interesting scholar Anton Yeager, who, who yeah. is now writing about the show. this as well, point out, we live in a in a in a in a, in a society that you know is m deeply atomized. Like that's yeah. a fact about our society, right? And as a result, we can have nothing like the, the interwar uh, fascist parties. So just in these analytic terms, it's a very misleading um, kind of um, uh, designation. And we can talk a little bit more about the politics of it, too, if you think that would be useful. But I don't know if you have other questions. No, I think that that, that covers a lot of bases. And I, I think that it's a good rejoinder to people who, especially after um, January 6th and the, the so-called uprising, 
um, saw vindication of their view that there was something about uh, Trumpism that was fundamentally, say, anti-American or at least anti-constitutional or that strove for like an overthrow of, of liberal democracy in the United States. When I read your writing on it in your book, Microverses and Elsewhere, uh, New Left Review, you're on the editorial board, uh, you point to the fact that on, on January 6th, you saw, sure, some uh, indications of some sort of white supremacist uh, symbology, uh, but mostly it was very much within the American sphere of like small Jeffersonian democracy, you know, some Confederate flags and whatnot, but they were, they were referencing um, American visions of liberty and insurrection as opposed to trying to import some sort of European version. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I agree with that. I think um, I'll make an even stronger argument that may be more controversial. I do not think it really is accurate or helpful to describe the Trumpist phenomenon as anti-democratic. Um, mm. It's completely wrapped in the symbology of a certain democratic idea. It is deeply, I would say, I guess your expression, illiberal is correct. Mm. But the whole idea behind uh, Trumpism or MAGA politics or whatever we want to call this um, is that the people need to take back these corrupt institutions which have been um, handed over to a nefarious cabal that is self-serving in various ways. This is not an anti-democratic idea. It is also true that there were, um, in, a, in a weird kind of way, this sort of, con sort of you could say, authoritarian democratic conception had, ha has its own roots in um, interwar European fascism as well, but we can get, we can get back to that. It's, this whole business about democracy and anti-democracy is a very complicated terrain that mm. we need to be very careful about. Um, because if you ask the Trump supporters if their ideas are anti-democratic, they would obviously reject that. And most of them think not, not only are they Democrats, but they're also defending the American Constitution. Right. Of course, whether one can be a Democrat and a really sincere defender of the American Constitution is itself an interesting question. But the point is that, you know, it, it, it's essentially this is becomes it's a kind of a, a, an insult. And it's not an analytic term. It doesn't really tell us what's going on very much um with with that movement uh so you know um i'm very skeptical of that sort of uh of, of that um sort of discussion yeah your answer there i think is really good because it helps us uh to set up um uh, a piece of yours that i hope people checked out when it came out was it last year the seven theses uh article in new left review you wrote with uh, robert brenner was it several months ago it came out uh, no, I think it's just it's in the it's been in the in the just the last issue, I believe. Just the last issue. The issue before the most recent one, I think, something so, like that. So yeah, relatively, relatively recent, yeah. and uh, also according to Anthony Adverso, relatively controversial, perhaps because it leaves the sort of realm that the the beginning of the episode was in, which is you know taking for granted the sort of liberal conception of politics that exists in this country, and what you and Bob Brenner do is you actually try to take a stab at breaking down the last, you know, the recent period of American politics in class terms and not just trying to understand, like, are the Republicans truly a working class party, which, of course, is a red herring, uh, but instead try to understand in class terms what sort of material politics we're seeing 
if we're in a period as, you know, and I think all of our listeners by now are Brennerites on this question, if the last 40, 50 years have seen a persistent stagnation uh, in the in the capitalist core, and if there aren't, in fact, the profits, profits sufficient in order to create a new ca uh, class compact or have something that looks like a renewal of social democracy in the United States. So maybe, I don't know if you got much pushback from that article, but mm. Uh, what did you were, were some of the responses to a negative? Were those from liberal colleagues of yours? What was it that was so controversial about what you and Bob Brenner said in that article? I think the first thing to do is just to lay out the argument of the article Please. and then we can talk about the controversies to the extent that I understand them. That are <laughs> OK, so the first there, there are a couple points of the article. I think we can be there is it offers two things. One is a brief sort of reprise of the long downturn thesis, but people will be familiar with that already. And I would say, of course, um, Brenner has been one of the principal people who's been articulating this idea that we are in a long slowdown of the global capitalist economy, but it's hardly a controversial thesis. Hmm. As Cedric Lauren Durand Summers. <laughs> what's, yeah, Larry Summers, for yeah. example, or as Cedric Durand recently pointed out in his rejoinder to Evgeny Moritzov, he pointed out that this idea of the long downturn is one of the least controversial, um, you know, observations out there. Hmm. So we we ought to start with the with with that, right? And then, of course, we try to develop in relationship to that an analysis of the contemporary moment. Now, there's a few things that that uh, I think need to be sort of set up um, uh, at, at the beginning, uh, I'll, and I'll just say the. Um, the we could say the main the main point for politic for the sort of political sociology of the contemporary moment that we are making is that no one has an adequate class analysis of contemporary U.S. politics, mm. and in part because the term class is really being bandied about in a very a theoretical way. So when people talk about working class in particular, they're often referring to people who are highly educated or who have a certain income level. But that's not a class. Hmm. A class is defined by a relationship to the means of production or rather a relationship to the you know, access to one's own means of reproduction, however you want to specify it. And the working class includes all those persons who have to work for a living. That is to say, all those persons who do not have direct and unmediated access to the means of reproduction. Okay, that's that's what the working class is. So instead of talking about people without college degrees, we ought to be talking about class in that way. If you define the working class in that way, which is, you know, that's just a fairly straightforward Marxian way of understanding the working class, you come to an important realization, which is that the working class comprises the vast majority of the population in the U.S. and probably in every OECD country. Something like 68 percent when you crunch the numbers around something that. like that, depending if you basically if you subtract the you know, people who own their own businesses, it's about 68 percent. That's right. So it's a large group. Now, it's internally divided. And what we need to understand that it, the, the, the politics of uh, class is a theory about what the basis of those internal divisions mm. um, is, right? What is the basis of those internal divisions? Um, in my opinion, uh, the, 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 the internal structuring of, of, the, of the working class, its internal divisions, is based on a certain ambiguity in class 
interests. That is to say, workers can pursue their interests either as members of an exploited class or as petty owners of the commodity labor power. Right. When they pursue their interests as petty owners of commodity labor power, they tend to engage in forms of sort of fencing off or what I call closure, uh, which is often marked by race, ethnicity, citizenship status, um, or credentialing. Craft unionism. Or craft unionism. This is a very long-standing process. The point is that that is a material interest. That is not just identity. It is a material interest. It is a way of pursuing one's material interest. So we shouldn't be having this discussion about identity versus material interests. <laughs> the particular kind of, we could say, the culturalized structure of American politics today is not um, an alternative to material interests. It is a way that many, many working people are pursuing their material interests for quite understandable reasons, right? right? Now, the point that we are making is that in a context of very low growth, right, um, you're going to get a couple of different kinds of phenomena. One is going to be an increasing imbrication or fusion of politics and economics at the elite level. So among the holders of, of capital, owners of capital, but that also you're going to get at the same time an accentuation of this process of uh, what you could think of as fragmentation along race, ethnic credentialing lines among the working class. Which then reflects itself, its form of appearance is this polarization of American politics. Right, around non-class issues right. <laughs> in particular, right? That so our argument is that this has that the, the contemporary politics has this very understandable uh, material um, basis. Now it seems to so that's the that is the basic. I'm just very roughly sketching what we laid out. Now there have been two kind of people have said I think as I understand it people have said two basic things about it. There seems to be some pushback on the idea about whether we are in a moment that can still be characterized as the long downturn. Mm. Um, we'll see. I'm not really seeing that. Uh, but there is this idea that maybe capitalism is ready to restart its productive engines or so on. For, for reasons that, you know, I think would be familiar to listeners of your show. I mean, yeah. particularly the continuing problem of overcapacity. Right. It's hard for me to see how that's going to happen. So that's one thing. And Unless maybe one, this... This Ukrainian-Russian war destroys enough means of production that we can go back to like a uh, 1946 situation. But nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Thing. I mean, and who, Thank who God. obviously only an insane person wants a global war. But yeah. but and it's also personally, I think it's just unlikely, which is a good thing, you know. Um, and it's not what people are saying in terms of their critique of this specific argument. It has to do with people's understanding of you know, whether or not contemporary capitalism still has the juice it needs to continue to grow. If it does, then presumably there's this idea that a kind of social democratic class compromise would still be possible, right? The other line of critique is that um, it comes from people who are um, committed to the idea of so-called class dealignment. Mm. And the class dealignment thesis says that at one time the Democratic Party was, a, was the party of the American working class, but now it has ceased to be. And um, what we need to do, what the left needs to do, is to push the Democratic Party back to articulating the class interests. Now, um, I think 
our analysis of that, at least this is my analysis of that, would be to say, first of all, I'm not so sure that the uh, you know American Democratic Party um, has ever been a party of the working class. Yes, it had uh, the majority of manufacturing workers in the Northeast for a substantial period of time, but there were all lots of other workers that it did not have, right? So that's one comment to make about it. So the supposed halcyon days of American politics when the Democratic Party was a class party, I think are a, it's a bit um, overblown, mm. in, in my opinion. Um, and the second point to make about that is that the class dealignment argument tends to be articulated in precisely these terms. At one time, Democratic Party did make appeal on the basis of economic interests, but now, for whatever reason, it appeals to its voters on the basis of identity. Mm. But, but as I've tried to explain, there are very obvious material reasons why Democrats make claims in, the, in those ways, uh, as there are very obvious material reasons why Republicans would make claims to their voters about uh, on the basis of racism and uh, ethnic exclusivity. Yes. So it's not a materialist argument. It actually somehow, uh, if we if if they don't if if uh, people's interests are not being appealed to on the basis of their uh, position vis-a-vis -vis employers in this way, then it just becomes identity politics. But that's an inadequate analysis. It also puts the left in a very odd position in the U.S., which is that then we become essentially electoral advisors to the Democratic Party, mm. basically telling them, oh, if you just did this obvious thing, right. you would have uh, you know, electoral success as far as the eye could see. I mean, not only do I not believe that that's the case, because I think actually that, the, that I, I'm actually think that the people who are professionally occupied with figuring out how Democratic politicians can win elections know very well their business. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, much you better think so. probably than, you know, it's also just not the game that I think most of us want to be in. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're presumably something other than an interest group lobbying uh, for the Democratic Party. Yeah, unfortunately, that that seems to be a, a direction that people want to continue to go down, even after what we saw happen with the Bernie Sanders movement. I, talk a little bit about what the the base of the Democratic Party is, or or to say like what's the, what's the coalition, what's the material coalition there that exists in your uh, in your book in Microverses, you kind of you make fun of and you pillory driving around the uh, the the hills of Oakland and seeing you know nice nicely appointed cars with bumper stickers that say tax the ultra rich on them, you know, uh, Liz Warren stuff. And these are, of course, it's some of the most uh, Tony zip codes in the entire country. Talk a little bit about why the strategists of the Democratic Party aren't just deluded and why it is that there is actually a stake for them in uh, pushing the sort of politics that the Democratic yeah. Party isn't mistakenly fallen into, but instead is now uh, pursuing uh, in line with its own interests All as right. a capitalist I mean party. I'll just say, um, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, so it's just absolutely, we, we know, right, that there, there's a, there, the, there, these extremely upscale zip codes are just votes or, uh, you know, um, they're, they're voting basis for the Democratic Party. That's just what the contemporary par Democratic Party is, right? Um, not only, we know basically that the Democratic Party is ministering to the interests of the of you know very um, sometimes very elite professionals and so on, and also of the urban 
a working class, which is often a working class of color, right? Mm -hmm. This is this is this is the this is the basic um, coalition there. Um, now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, of course, the one that you're posing, which is, well, if there's this, I mean, if there's this idea that there's some obvious other strategy where the Democratic Party, if they just, you know, appealed to, you know, I don't know, you know, what was that expression? The, why can't they appeal again to lunch pail Democrats <laughs> or, you know, Reagan Democrats? If they just did that, then it would be, you know, then the electoral politics would look a lot better. Um, but for some reason, they foolishly continue to be doubling down on this strategy that is focusing on areas that are geographically among the most prosperous in the country. Why are they doing that? Well, that whole way of posing the question to me is like, it's crazy, actually, <laughs> because all you have to do, look at the last two elections, actually three election cycles in a highly polarized environment. The Democrats have done remarkably well in electoral terms. Mm -hmm. Particularly in the last election, yeah, there was th th this was a historically successful election for the Democratic Party. There's just no denying that. I'm not a huge fan of the Democratic Party. I'm trying to say that, but I'm saying that this strategy that they are pursuing, they're pursuing it because it works. They can yeah. turn those voters out for one thing because they tend to be highly educated, right? And they can speak to some of the interests of those voters. That is the basis of the party, and they will continue to do that because it makes sense in electoral terms. So I just think that like for for people who are thinking about left politics, we need to understand that we are not in the business of offering a better electoral strategy to the Democratic Party. That's not our trump card, right? You know, that's all it, I'm saying. If it has been for the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years, it, it certainly shouldn't anymore. Um, no, it's it's interesting. I, I wonder if you could talk about uh, you, you mentioned closure before, you know, this strategy of uh, a sort of collective uh, closure, a um, an attempt to like to wall off uh, labor markets uh, and also yeah. um, different sort of coalitional patterns between sectors of capital and workers. We talked about the rank and file of the Democratic Party, but like, let's talk a little bit about in practice, like the Republicans using nativism as a way of enclosure. Uh, and, and the Democrats using what, like woke neoliberalism as a form of or credentialism? Something like that. I mean, that's kind of the that that's kind of the way that that that, that I would see it. I mean, the the, the point is that the but it, I, I think it's actually more than on the Democratic side. I mean, here's the thing I think we don't the, the question that we need to ask ourselves and, and we probably don't ask enough is we we ask ourselves all the time. Why are why are these, um you know, uh, why is the Republican base continue to vote? for Republicans considering that they don't do much for their base. Mm. We ought to ask the same question of the Democratic Party. Right. What is the basis of that? I mean, um, it, it too, I think, has a material basis. I think that, um, you know, the, the Democratic Party, uh, to the extent that it can appeal to its base um, uh, on the basis of um, valuing things like... Like science. Science, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Believe the science. Something that appeal. The, the thing about that is that people see, tend to think about that as an appeal on the basis of rationality or commitment to ideas, or whatever. Well, it might be that. It's also very much in the material interests of people who happen to hold college degrees. Right. Yeah. These are the people you you go to when you want to believe in the sciences. The people who have got their meritocratic uh, credentials. Right. 
So there's a so that's an important thing. Now on the Republican side, look, I mean, I, I mean the key argument is really about immigration, right? Oh, and yeah. It's a problematic thing, right? It's a difficult thing, I think, for folks on the left. But you know, it's um, it's a strong material argument, right? That uh, you know, you know, illegal immigration is uh, you know, perceived as because it has been a threat to uh, you know, working class wages in certain segments of the labor market. And, and let's be honest with ourselves you know, too, not to, to to go back and imagine some halcyon days of American labor. You know, the 19th century working class organizations that we had in this country. Uh, by and large, the craft unions especially, but even some industrial unions like the Knights of Labor uh, saw their petty commodity labor power threatened by immigrants and signed on to things like the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, and and were anti-migration uh, uh, from Southern Europe, for example. Um, so this has a long history in the United States and not just one that's been like implanted in the in the in the recent decades of immigration. It is part of, as you say, like a fallback strategy that we can dislike, that we can think is morally repugnant, repugnant and politically backwards. Uh, but but one that, as you say, almost comes more naturally than the idea of a class struggle politics uh, where you're coming together in order to actually confront capital, actually grab back some of that social surplus collectively. Absolutely. So I think what's really important about what you were saying and the thing that I would really emphasize is that, you know, the history that you're telling is often told in terms of the long legacy of racism in the U.S. Well, that's true, but it's also intrinsic to capitalism. Yes. Right. Yes. That's why it keeps coming back. Right. Because it's a rational strategy uh, that that worker that, that, is, that is available for workers to pursue. And there are some segments of the Republican sort of, you know, intellectual establishment that understand this quite clearly. And they understand it sometimes some, a little bit better sometimes, I think, than, 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 than the left does. Right. Right. There. But I mean, the, the, the paradox, of course, is that or I don't know if it's a paradox, but the fact of the matter is that I, I'm extraordinarily skeptical of the ability of the Republican Party to actually carry through seriously on this. <laughs> and so I think that they have in many ways, right? The problem is is that the 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 the, the real they can't deliver to the MAGA base, really. They, it's very hard for them to do that. So I yeah. think we're in a very un, politically unstable um situation. This is I, I wanna uh to just uh, circle back to fascism, and then I want to move on mm -hmm. to talking about the pandemic, because you write very eloquently and beautifully about that in a journalistic fashion. But I, I was just um, thinking about, you, you said at one point, I forget it was in an article or a book, uh, or your book, where you're saying that um, fascism, or like the return of fascism, or the, the return of the far right uh, to political power uh, doesn't seem particularly uh, frightening uh, or, or lasting because it doesn't seem as though they themselves have any capability of actually confronting the true social rot um, that capitalism and you know imperial breakdown has brought to Europe or the United States. There is no like forward-looking program, even as the you know in the interwar period. Uh, say you what you want about those bad guys in Italy and Germany, but there was like a revolutionizing program. There was, as you said, a geopolitical program. Now it seems as though it's a sort of defensist uh, appeal to nativism and a nationalism at a time when uh, the nation still is obviously very important, but people don't get exercised in a way that they would have in like, you know, 1870s Prussia. 
for the nation, uh, you know, certainly like blood and soil stuff. So what do you think about like going back to the fascism thing? Do you, do you think that uh, MAGA and these sort of currents don't really seem to have a, a, a way forward? Where do you think that's what, what do you think is going to come of that? I mean, so it, it's hard to say, right? I mean, in the sense that the electoral process in the U- U.S., is it, it the, the way I would put it, um, this is in a way drawing an, from an expression that, that is in the Perry Anderson article somewhere. He says the system has much more slack to the right than it does mm-hmm. to the left. So mm-hmm. sort of contingent events can always lead to some wild card from the extreme right. But, uh, it's, you see it with Trump, right? So Trump could get in. Sanders was never a real possibility. He could right? defeat the Republican Party apparatus, but the Democratic Party apparatus cannot be defeated. That's another way I think of putting it. Yeah. Um, but all the points that I, I think if we take a little bit of a step back and again, if we think historically in the way that you're suggesting, uh, yeah, um, the, the, the basis for radical nationalism, especially in the United States, are incredibly weak. Mm-hmm. Look, what's this ta- the, the, the test of whether you have a population that can actually be mobilized in national terms? In the way that the fascists wanted to is again, are they willing to go to war? And the U.S. population, if one thing is clear about the U.S. population since the Vietnam War, yeah. it is not big, willing to do that. Big no, big yet <laughs> from the American people for that. That's not going to happen. So the funny thing about this is we have this right wing politics, but in a, in in a, in, a, in a society that in a, I think in a deep way is very pacific. Mm. Right. Yeah, people have their guns and so on, but they're 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 not. This is not. Uh, you know, the legions are not going to be marching off to war. Maybe the drones are, but that's precisely a replacement for the legions, right? right. So this is a huge difference, and uh, no real fascist politics can get going outside of that of that kind of context. And I want to add this context too. Like none of this is to say that the good old standard, like American is apple pie. Uh, racism and uh, obviously the the tra- anti-trans panic that we're seeing right now. I mean, that doesn't. It's not to say that we just say, oh well, that'll all go away. It's not. I mean, that is deeply embedded. Uh, the in in the, this conflict is deeply embedded in American history and American society. It's only to say that you know the fever dreams of the of the editorial board of the New York Times that if Trump is elected again, that there's going to be MAGA legions of stormtroopers marching through Washington, D.C. and hanging Mike Pence and everybody else is exactly that, a fever dream. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think it's, I mean, personally, I think it's quite unlikely that Trump will be, I mean, it's possible, but I think unlikely Trump will be reelected. Yeah, let's let's we always have to be careful with our political prognostications because Lord knows we all got 2016 I'm not going to go on the record about whether Trump's going to win again in his <laughs> re-election. Let's put it that way. But, um, <laughs> so in uh, Microverses, uh, which you write, it's a, it's a beautiful and poignant, I think, a wonderful short book that people should pick up uh, from Verso. Uh, it's basically a series of journal entries as we enter uh, the lockdown and the pandemic. You yourself suffer some personal tragedies. Uh, and in this, you kind of keep a, um, a sort of tally, a running tally of your thoughts as I, I think is important because we all went through this experience and, you know, it reminded me, and I said this to you in an email, it reminded me of like 9-11 because now we're, it's not to say the pandemic is over now, 
because obviously people are still suffering and dying, certainly people who are um, immunocompromised and, and older people. But certainly the state response to it is that we're never going to see again what we saw with the with the lockdowns and with, with, with all of that. So in a certain sense, it's behind us. But similar to like the global war on terror or let's say similar to right after 9-11, there was a brief stretch of time that I remember a week or so, maybe two weeks um, before the, the drums of war started sounding where Americans were forced to ask ourselves, why do they hate us? And the answers that America came up with in the discourse weren't that great, but at least they were asking the question. We're now six months, eight months, a year or so out from the, the height of the lockdowns and the pandemics. And I'm not sure that we have, a, as a society have really tried yet, or maybe won't try at all to get our heads around the massive social experience that that was, uh, the sort of revolutionizing force, I think, for in so many people's lives, uh, changing society, changing the economy and changing politics in this country, right? Uh, but also what it actually revealed about ourselves and our country um, and, and where we might be particularly going. So I, I want to, like, what are some main takeaways from your books? How do you think we as a society coped uh, with the pandemic and what sort of changes did we see and where do you think we're we're going to come out of it? affected by it well i mean so i guess huge question thing, i'm sorry <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a big question but it's you know it's a good one i mean one thing that i would say about it is that obviously it revealed how incredibly unequal and un, you know just terrible things are people were being forced you know to go to work and and suddenly you know suddenly so-called unskilled workers were became essential workers yes. and everyone else could stay home on zoom right and this right. is this was awful. Um, so it revealed that. Um, it also revealed other things, I think, which are sort of fascinating. I mean, one, I think um, it revealed how, in a sense, pragmatic the American dominant class can be. Mm. Because, you know, for all the protestations about how we all believed in markets and so on and so forth, you know, suddenly, we're going to trillion dollars later. <laughs> we're going to open the floodgates and also, oh, and by the way, um, you know, we're going to we're going to do this amazing, really, truly amazing thing, which is to pump money into these vaccine research enterprises. And we're going to like, you know, basically create some vaccines. Now, obviously, this was all massively corrupt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was lots of profit taking and so on. But it is kind of a remarkable it is a kind of remarkable fact that that happened. Um, and I think that sort of combined with Trump's own, um, you know, bizarre lack of really any coherent ideological position and his flailing about for all those years, I think it's one of the things that it has, in my opinion, it essentially put to death the ideology, if not the practice of neoliberalism, mm -hmm. which I, I think neoliberalism is dead as a doornail in ideological terms. Yeah, I was just oh. talking with uh, Derek Varn yesterday for an episode that came out today. Folks have probably heard it already. Uh, talking about a post-neoliberal era and where we date that, maybe you could, could call that 2008, but certainly by like 2020, 2021, when the pandemic actually hits, I, I, I do agree that we've reached a period where we could definitively say that, that that stage, that period of capitalist development has been put to bed. For That's, a variety of well, at least in, in, in terms of the, uh, you know, it, it, of its ideological wrapper. I mean, I ideologically, think the, yeah. the, the, the difference is that, um, 
I mean, the, it, it's the reason I'm being I'm hedging a little bit is I, I I think we need to have a deeper discussion about what neoliberalism as a period actually was. Yeah, because I, I think that of all the periods of capitalism, there is a sense in which the neoliberal ideology is the most misleading about its actual practice. Yeah, it's it's not really about markets. A lot of it is about a very nakedly political set of power, you know, essentially about power grabs and so on. Mm. Um, but I think it's important when we're thinking about the whole period from 2008. I mean, remember, I mean, a lot of things are different. I mean, Obama was a sincere neoliberal. Mm -hmm. He believed in that stuff. Um, now, one commonality between Trump and Biden is that neither one of them believe it. Mm. They're not. I mean, and part of it is a generational thing. Right. Um, and it, it's actually one of the interesting things. Um, this is kind of a little bit off topic, but it's something I've been thinking about a little bit is why is it that we have this sudden reemergence of these octogenarian figures? Mm. I mean, you got Trump and Biden and obviously Sanders. Mm -hmm. Why is that? I think it's because these people are coming from a time before neoliberalism. Right. Yeah. Even and, though Biden kind of in the 1970s is a, is an early adopter. He's an early adopter, but he's and, and he obviously doesn't have any principled position, right? He'll go along with whatever. Yeah. But the point about Biden, it's not that he is not a conservative Democrat. It's not that he, he's totally business friendly. He went along with that agenda. It's that he's not a sincere believer in the way that someone like a Barack Obama or I would say a Bill Clinton mm. was a sincere believer. They believed that that neoliberal stuff was was actually the way things worked. Biden saw that he was living in a neoliberal era. Yeah. Right? And Trump obviously doesn't believe anything. And Sanders is obviously rejects neoliberalism. So, right, right. so I think we have a strange it's a it's a it's a strange moment now in which, you know, you, you really have this. um it's a true watershed, I think. I think I think that that era is over. Yeah. And there's and this ties back to with the pandemic response uh, to your thesis with um, with Bob Brenner about uh, political capitalism, too, right? Yeah. And I think that maybe maybe the pandemic isn't the beginning, but it's certainly sort of the apotheosis of this um, uh, picking of winners and losers, let's say, through various uh, different political means various different political grabs. Basically, you're, you argue that one of the main ways in which uh, you know, profits are distributed around anymore uh, in a low profits environment uh, is through various political chicanery, whether it's subsidies or tax cuts or just like the PPP act, uh, just like massive grifting and, and grafting. Uh, talk a little bit about that and its relationship to the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, so this is this is the other thing I should say. This is probably the one of the other controversial points in the article that people wanted to push back on. Um, and I think what I'd like to do um, is just kind of put some parameters on this discussion. I mean, the, the 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 point about political capitalism, it's not really the old monopoly capitalism thesis, right? Mm. Because um, we're not saying that there's been this process of concentration and now we have these huge firms that have market power and they're no longer subject to competitive constraints. Mm -hmm. um, You're not doing because, monthly review in, uh, tw in the 2020s. Right. This is it's not really us. So yeah. what we're saying is a little different, which is that, in fact, um, it's not a, it's not a, it's not happening at the economic level. It's not a process of concentration. It is really a matter um, of, of, of politics, right? It's a matter of 
uh, firms um, and industries, sometimes industries as a whole, uh, you know, being, you know, receiving state um, state largesse. Um, and I think, um, of course, within there are elements of Keynesian economics and so on that are recycled in new ways, basically, uh, and become tools for the redistribution of the surplus through political means. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that mortgage, uh, the mortgage market is probably the best way that you can see that. So these huge, you know, um, Fannie Mae and, and Freddie Mac, these huge state sponsored enterprises um, that have an, you know, they have an absolute backstop guarantee by the state. But you also see it in, obviously, in um, interest rate politics where, you, you know, uh, the Fed tries to juice the stock market by um, making, uh, you know, very, very low interest loans available to um, key actors in, in, in those markets. And then they can basically um, gain profit through an arbitrage between the cost of their borrowing and the interest rates to which they lend to people, or they can invest themselves. Um, so there are many kind of mechanisms it was just happening. It's also happening just through um, credit card debt, mm. personal debt, and the way in which um, you know uh, these uh, these these things are backed up really by political power. Uh, so. Um, this is part of what is um, this is this is we a, a transition that's happening within capitalism. It's not replacing wage labor, mm. right? That's still going on. It's, it's still not, happening. You're not saying it's replacing the value form. Not replacing the value form. It's not serfdom. It's not feudalism. But it is some kind of very new configuration, and it has really important implications for how we understand um, politics. Mm. And it also creates the following problem. It makes it even more difficult than it normally is to engage in actual redistributive politics from capital to labor. Mm -hmm. Because to the extent that capital is dependent on politics, it's going to be more and more resistant to any uh, redistributive policies, right? Uh, just a basic point, right? Because if you're obviously, if the basic uh, form that... Um, that profit is going to take is going to be relative surplus value through production of goods and services, you're going to be more tolerant of, you know, some redistributive policies, especially if they somehow guarantee those rates of return. That's the idea of a class compromise. But that sort of politics is going to be more difficult now to the extent that politics and economics are imbricated or interlinked with one another, which creates a legitimation problem, actually, because um, you basically a, a per, someone like Biden, who's in, in a way kind of shuffling toward a kind of attempt to rerun uh, the New Deal. You know, that's mm. what probably he would like to do. Ultimately, very hard for him to do that in the context of political capitalism. Right. So what he would like to be able to do and what he can do, given his relationship to the class interests that really run the Democratic Party are very different things. And that contradiction is probably going to continue to characterize American politics and to continue to be a real source of instability uh, going forward. Mm. As we kind of wind down now, and this has been a really, really fascinating discussion, um, with this imprecation of uh, political and economic power, um, with these shifts that we're seeing, what sort of hope is there for um, for Marxists, for communists, for socialists out there? I mean, we 
try to look at these things dialectically, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it that arises out of this particular political and economic logjam uh, that we could imagine could burst through uh, potentially towards towards human freedom and human emancipation? Well, I think I think the point I, I think that the point is um, that you know we should be really uh, aiming toward um, a form of politics that demands um, you know basically much more significant public control over the means of production. Let me just put it that way. Mm. That is to say, I don't think I, I think we shouldn't stop at half measures. <laughs> Because I actually don't think they're realistic. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. So I think that in a way, the the the, the um, you know what I would say is that paradoxically, the utopian radical project of, of of socialism is a more realistic one than the apparently more realistic and less utopian project of Keynesianism, right? Yeah. It's less realistic. Or MAGA, for that matter. Or MAGA, which. And MAGA is, if it were carried through, would essentially be a right-wing Keynesianism. That's what's right. being offered, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are flavors of the same thing, different flavors of the same ice cream, or however you want to put that, right? And in a, so, if we believe, right, in a situation of stagnation due to basically structural um, overcapacity at the global level. The best thing that is going to be produced by a turn towards some kind of robust Keynesianism will be a zero-sum struggle with other national economies, which, in my opinion, will also be intrinsically xenophobic and nationalist in a very bad way. Which brings us back to something that looks like the interwar period, potentially. And I don't know what that looks like. Certainly the, the Ukrainian-Russian war um, could potentially lead to a situation where these sort of mass mobilizations of people under the rubric of the nation um, could actually, I don't know, come back to the extent that we do have, we do have to be scared again for that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, a national aggressive national capitalism with geopolitical ambitions is not a place we want to be. Yeah. Let's not go there. Let's let's instead, I think, take this wonderful discussion uh, and think about the ways in which, you know, these obviously we're in a very fraught political and economic moment right now. But uh, I still believe in class power, and uh, I know you do too. So let's uh, all of us think about the ways in which that could be realized. Dylan, thank you so much. This was a really, really excellent conversation. Thanks a lot for having me. It was great talking to you. If you have not yet purchased uh, Dylan Riley's book, Microverses from Verso Books, we will put a link for that in the show notes. 